All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to do the call. Hello, and welcome to episode 97 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the 1972 Shaw Brothers Wusha film, The 14 Amazons. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Laura Norris and Sarah Kluster. Hello, friends. Hey. Howdy, friends. So we're going to quickly introduce ourselves and um, then jump right in. Um, as a part of today's introductions, we're also going to tell you listeners when we first um, encountered Wusha film in our lives. So we're going to actually let Laurie go first, and then Sarah, then I will finish. Thanks, Katie. I'm Laurie Norris, and I am still working on my dissertation here in Athens, Georgia, at the University of Georgia, though currently I'm completely distracted because I'm trying to buy a house. So maybe by the time you guys are listening to this, I will not have a house or a dissertation, but I will have a very nice collection of Wuxia films because I came to these as a kid actually through kung fu movies or wushu films. And my love of Bruce Lee led me to my love of Jackie Chan and the historical stuff there led me to Wuxia movies. So um, I'm a lover of film from way, way back and these in particular. Thanks, Sarah. How about you? Hi, well, I'm Sarah Kluster. My first experience with a Wuxia film would be Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because that was just everywhere in like 2000. And so I went to go see it. And I remember thinking, wow, this is super, super weird. And why are they flying and all of this kind of stuff. And so it was a huge cultural shock to see like the, the very different norms than how it would be if it were produced uh, by a, a Western movie company. And then I didn't really ever see any for a very long time. And then I was lucky enough to uh, be roommates with, for two years in college and the best friends afterwards with a uh, girl named Katie Wong. And so she was an Asian studies major. Her, her parents would take her to China as a child. And so she loved these things. And so I have these memories of very disjointed viewings of these wuxia films that she would show us because instead of just saying, Hey, I want you to watch hero or house of flying daggers or any of these, she would be like, this is this one awesome scene. And then we'd spend like 30 or 40 minutes trying to find the one scene on the videotape to watch the five minute scene rather than just being like, you can just watch this whole movie. It'll be fine. But that's how I got a lot of exposure to many others because being her friend and she loved them. And so she would always want to watch them and share them with us. And so uh, Wuxia films uh, also kind of helped lead me to anime and all sorts of other uh, interests that I uh, later grew to really love. Thanks. Um, I, like you, Sarah, I first, I guess, first experienced um, this type of film with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, though that was kind of a strange thing because I saw that movie in the theater on a date 
which was kind of awkward. And I'm pretty sure it was my first film that I ever saw with subtitles. Somehow I made it to high school without having ever seen a, a film in another language. And so it was kind of a strange experience. I didn't totally, I didn't understand the genre. And because I was new to the idea of subtitles, I was trying to read and watch at the same time, which was a little bit difficult. And so, um, and, and, and again, like you, then I didn't, I didn't see anything like that for a long time. But when, um, when David and I first got together, my husband is David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Um, he had watched a lot of Wu Sha film and he said, I think you, I think you might like this. And so the first movie we ever watched together, which I guess would be my second first exposure right after Crouching Tiger in high school was a film called The Black and White Swordsman, um, from I think 1971. And it just blew me away. Um, you know, the flying and all crazy jumping. But the, my favorite part about that movie is that it's so visually arresting and interesting because the black and white swordsman, titular black and white swordsman, one is in all black, one is in all white. Um, and it kept making me think of spy versus spy because they also wear these big wide brimmed hats. Um, hilarious. And it was a great movie. And so after that, we just watched so many other ones over the years. And um, there's a few that we, we come back to and watch more frequently. One of my, um, one of my favorite um, actresses is Bridget Lynn, and so we've watched a lot of the ones, uh, a lot of hers. But um, and since I forgot to say, I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Houston, Texas, and um, I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. And I have four children, um, two of whom are in the house right now because we're recording during the day. And so hopefully, um, listeners, you won't hear any squeals or screams. Um, but if you do, I'm sorry in advance. Um, before we move into uh, kind of our knowing section where we talk about a lot of background, I just wanted to talk for just a second um, about why I chose this topic. Um, it occurred to me because, you know, on CFP, we're always thinking about strong women and um, and what does it mean to be a strong woman? And this I wanted to talk about because it's a very, very different view or a different version of womanly strength, obviously, than we encounter in our daily lives as we live them. Um, and also because, um, at least for a lot of us, there's a cultural disjunct there, too. It's a way of approaching the idea of womanly strength um, from a, a different angle. So um, we're going to jump right into knowing. And um, before we talk about this film specifically, um, Laurie's going to give us a little bit of an overview about Wuxia film and about the Shaw brothers who made this particular movie, um, since Laurie's our resident film expert. So why don't you go ahead, Laurie? Thanks, Katie. So Wuxia is a Chinese genre, not just in film, but in, in literature and all sorts of art that is devoted to the classical military hero. And in Mandarin, which I do not speak and thus cannot assure that I'm pronouncing any of this properly. So if it's all butchered, I, I apologize. So in Mandarin, Wu is often translated as martial or armed and Xia as hero. So you can think of Wu Xia as very similar to the Western chivalric tradition, like the Arthurian cycles. And that's a way to get a sense of the, of how honor, loyalty, class, and gender work within Wu Xia as a genre. And without going too far into the history of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, say the May 4th movement in mainland China, but seriously, go look that up on your own time because it is fascinating, particularly in the ways that it still plays out today and in Wu Sha film. 
the spread of nationalism in early 20th century China um, spurred on and renewed a broader social interest in wuxia stories. The same kind of romantic revisioning of a classical past that much of the West is also experiencing at this time. The genre allowed for a nationalistic revisiting of China, of Chinese history, while also supporting the anti-traditionalist leanings of the burgeoning new culture movement. And much like its Japanese counterpart, Bushido, and the Western chivalric traditions, wuxia stories often center around a warrior's code, where there are typically, for these movies, eight features that are attributed to the hero. And so uh, the stories revolve around whether or not someone has maintained or violated things like kindness, justice, loyalty, bravery, truthfulness, not caring about wealth, seeking glory, and also individualism. And it's the individualism there that creates the biggest break with the sort of Confucian tradition that you actually see depicted in wuxia films. So it's like taking the history where you would not be so concerned about individual glory and bringing it in to an, a more modern historical moment that is obsessed with individual glory and kind of, uh, over the the inconsistencies there. Um, for film in particular, Wuxia's golden age was right smack dab in the middle of the 20th century. So after the Cultural Revolution saw many of Chi uh, mainland China's artists and intellectuals leave or flee, as the case may be, for places like Hong Kong or Singapore, the these film artists... They use the power of cinematography to introduce elements of fantasy into wuxia battles. So they would do on the page, like wuxia poetry, wuxia prose would be sort of magically realist. And in order to get that into wuxia film, they, they relied on a lot of powerful cinematic tropes, um, like wire work and the use of trampolines to help defy gravity as if the warriors were all flying acrobats. And that action choreography would, would ultimately become something that Hong Kong cinema is legendary for. So whether it's in wuxia or wushu films, the films also incorporate elements of Peking opera, like opulent and symbolic costuming, and so the masters of this opulent, fantastical style are the Shaw brothers. There were four of them. The most famous, or arguably the most famous, but certainly the most important for us is the youngest, Run Run Shaw. They, uh, their original production company was started in 1925, but uh, in Singapore, and then their actual like empire began later when Run Run and his elder brother Run Me moved their family family operations to Hong Kong in the 1950s and took over basically. Uh, they built a studio called Movie Town that was modeled on the Hollywood system, and that's where they in established a virtual cinematic empire on Clearwater Bay. Movie Town was the largest privately owned studio in the world at the height of their production. 
like Italy's rival, Cinecetta, where all of those huge epics of, of Western film and um, also fascist film, <laughs> Mussolini, uh, Cinecetta was state-owned. So where you had something like that, in Europe, in Hong Kong, you had the Shaw brothers and their, their rather tightly controlled empire. So if you took all of the Hollywood studios and just put them in one family's hand, you have a sense of the power that the Shaw brothers had. So like I said, the youngest of the four Shaw brothers, Run Run, was arguably the mastermind behind the company's success and was the producer overseeing the 14 Amazons. The the Shaw brothers may not have invented wuxia or wushu, which other, otherwise known as kung fu films, but the studio definitely perfected and popularized them for audiences around the world. And The 14 Amazons is an excellent example of that. It was incredibly popular, and it made a ton of money, and it basically starred every single amazing actor that they had in their in their studio stable it's it's a who's who of shaw brothers wuxia films so if you're at all interested in the history of cinema you need to go watch this movie like if you're all at all interested in really amazing movies you have to go see this movie but it is really important in the broader history of hong kong cinema as well as world cinema Thanks so much. Um, and I, I, I always find it interesting too how this movie, um, like you're talking about if it's, if it's important for all cinema, but also within Wuxia, to me, it feels so different than a lot of the other Wuxia films because it's not centered on a hero, a male hero. Um, and so I like it too because it kind of completes the picture a little bit. It shows you a, a different side. Um, and that's actually a great uh, transition to, I'm going to talk just for a few minutes before we get to the movie about one specific character, um, and again, another caveat, listeners, well, I already said this, I'm going to say it too, we don't speak Chinese. Also, the uh, widely available version of this film that we all watch for today is dubbed, so um, we're also not hearing these names said aloud, so if I say this name terribly, please forgive me, um, but I'm going to talk for a few minutes about Mu Ying. Um in this movie, um, there are a variety of female characters, obviously, because it's the 14 Amazons, but the kind of center of the film is Mu Ying, um, and we're going to hear more about her from Sarah when she does the plot summary, but she, um, she is the character who, um, she loses her husband, and, um, and so when they go out into battle, everything's kind of centering on her. Well, she is a very, very, very famous character, um, and so I wanted to talk for just a few minutes about her character, because I think knowing more about this particular woman um, helps you understand the film better. So uh, Mu Ying, she was a legendary heroine, um, Song Dynasty, and this whole movie, 14 Amazons, is about the Yang family. And she's a big figure in um, something called the Generals of the Yang family, which is a collection of folklore plays, novels, lots of different types of texts that tell the stories of the Yang family. Um, and she's kind of seen as a cultural symbol of a steadfast woman. And also referenced in the movie are her husband, Yang Songbao, and her son, uh, Yang Wenguang, who's depicted in the film. So the story about her, and I'm going to summarize, um, it's not that long of a story, but um, 
knowing this, I think also will help you to view the movie a little differently too. So basically she was supposed to practice martial arts from a really young age. Um, she had a bandit father, um, I guess who taught her, who ruled a particular fortress. One day Yang Zhang Bao, who becomes her husband, shows up at the gate and he's demanding something called dragon taming wood um, because his father wants it. And her father refuses, so they fight in a duel and the young man is captured. Um, he refuses to surrender and he demands death. She finds herself attracted to this prisoner and so she boldly proposes marriage to him. He accepts her marriage proposal and then he comes back and reports all this to his father um, when he does, his father says, you're a disgrace, you're executed. You can't ally yourself with them. So to save her fiancé, Mu comes out of the fortress and battles um, the father, her fiancé's father, and captures him too. Um, and then she apologizes uh, to her future father-in-law, and so finally he agrees to the marriage and, you know, and welcomes her into the family. So this is how she's supposed to become part of the Yang family to start with is this elaborate story in which she's um, she's displaying prowess, she's displaying bravery, she's displaying assertiveness, right? She proposes marriage to him, she beats his father in battle. <laughs> um, so it's just a very dramatic story. And um, another thing that is also written about her in the legends is that she played a huge, ba uh, a huge part in a battle against um, Kaitan forces. It says, um, and I love this, especially in breaking their previously unstoppable heavenly gate formation, which is in all caps. So she's regarded as a steadfast kind of um, wife mother figure, but also as a legendary warrior. Really fascinating. Um, and she sometimes she's venerated as a, as a goddess. Um, there's a creator on Venus that's named after her, this character. Um, and also, Laurie, touching on some of the stuff you said about how all the film stuff is tying in with history. So during the Great Leap Forward period, um, so 1958 to 1960, she was really, really popular and really widely praised. And there was a, a whole brigade of, of led by women that was named after her, a military brigade. So um, she's a huge figure. And um, among other things, I know learning all of this about her helped me understand something else in the film, which had always confused me a little bit, which is exactly why everyone, including um, Grand Duchess, who's the oldest of the women, why they all defer to Mu. I was not totally certain why even Great Grandma would be deferring to her, but having read all this, now I get it. It's, you know, it's, it's about her reputation as a, uh, as, as a warrior. And I think watching that film as a, as a Westerner, too, and not knowing any of this, you kind of think, they keep talking about how she's so awesome, but, like, is she? Because you haven't, you see it happen as the movie, if you're watching the movie and you don't know who this person is, you kind of see it unfold and you go, oh, she is amazing. But, um, you know, for people watching the movie um, when it first came out, it would have been super, super familiar with exactly who this person is because she's been around forever. The stories about her have been around forever. Everybody knows who she is and they know what she's supposed to have done. And so, you know, of course, obviously, she's going to be able to do all these things. It just, it opened it up a lot for me. Um, so, uh, okay. Which, and actually, before we move on to um, to uh, the the summary that Sarah's going to give us, do you guys have anything, having having kind of learned that stuff about her, is there anything, does it change anything in the movie for you, knowing that? Not really. Um, I, I will make the, uh, I will go ahead and make the uh, 
admission on my own part uh, that it took me, I had almost no clue who each individual actress was because in the beginning we, we, we see them and they're in like, they have different hairstyles and they're in different outfits, but then they're like, Oh, we're going to be warriors. They all put on the same headdress. Their hair is all done the same way. They all have the same makeup and they all have identical costumes. And I'm just like, Oh no, I'm about to be a cliche, aren't I? It's hard. It's very hard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They do. They they all look very similar in their garb. And one of the ways that we tell people apart is quickly is by clothes. And so many of these scenes go by so fast, particularly in the fight scenes. I get that. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And sort of building off of that, this is definitely something I want to talk about in, in a couple of minutes. So I'm, I'm only going to tease it here. But one of the things that really struck me was that opening of the film where everyone does look exactly alike. And I'm thinking to myself, but she's amazing. Why can't we tell her apart? And so I have some thoughts. Spoiler. We'll get to those in a second. All right. Well, um, so that listeners, so you can understand what we're even talking about with any of this. Sarah's going to give us a little bit of a plot summary about the movie. So go ahead, Sarah. Well, uh, so the 14 Amazon, as we've talked about it, this is kind of taking place. This series has very much a a uh, sense of like gallantry about it and so the yang family which is an actual family uh that has been part of like chinese folklore for you know thousands of years so it would be kind of if if there were some way that we you know in 1200 years that they were making video they were making media about like the windsors or the Kennedys, just these very famous families that the names still exist now, even though they're not necessarily like, but it's a very famous family. Um, they, they have served their country, the country of China very, very well. And so this is taking place in the Song dynasty, which is roughly about 900 to about 1259 or so whenever, whenever China was finally conquered by Kublai Khan, that's, that's when, uh, this, uh, dynasty ends. And so at that point, you have lots of different kind of warring factions. And so you rather than just kind of all of China under an emperor, like we maybe think of later on there, you know, it's much more regional. And so there uh, these this family has uh, served their emperor. And so they are at war with kind of a neighboring country. The the men in this family, all the male Yangs are are put to death and they're ambushed. And it is strongly implied that this ambush was kind of trickery that it wasn't very brave that they that this kind of canniness that they used was very kind of unmanly for these kind of bandit kings as they seem to be and so his this death means that the only son left in the family is a son that is still living at home with all of these females um including uh mukaying and the other uh the other characters and so as news of this gets uh, brought back, you know, the family is justifiably just very upset and mortified. But rather than being shrinking violets and doing what in Arthurian romance, what you might have of just kind of like, oh, you know, fainting damsels in distress, that knights are going to go out and avenge this. No, these women are going to go do it themselves. And they have essentially no thought or concern for their own safety. And it is all about kind of avenging and making sure that we honor the family name. They kind of, they kind of uh, put this by and like, hey, by the way, you government bureaucrats, we need you to send us soldiers. But 
his character is very cowardly and it's a marked contrast to the to the resolute bravery of the 14 women. And so they they basically defy him and by defying him they also defy the emperor. And so there's a lot of a uh, and so uh there's a lot going on there and this is that part of initially uh Alan Wuxia's allegiance to the emperor, you know, doing what you're told. So it's a Wuxia film but they're they're kind of defying the authority over them in a very bold way. And so they just they take kind of as many retainers who are willing to go with them and they take and they go off to kind of fight this king and they have setbacks and they um and many of the, and I couldn't quite count how many of the 14 Amazons made it to the end. I tried counting at the very end and it looked like maybe eight or so of them made it. And so the, the idea is that this is not something where this is not a Disney movie where there is no blood, there is no gore. And, oh, look, everybody made it to the end and it was fine. No, many of these female characters uh, who are these Amazons have really brutal deaths or they have sacrificial deaths um, for the greater cause, right? That it's not about them as an individual. It is about the family honor and what they can do for that. And eventually through kind of uh, uh, being kind of canny and clever, the women are able to finally, with the help of their retainers, to kind of to kill the the evil neighboring king and they they kind of bring back his head and it it actually to me had a very a game of thrones feel to it um a very kind of mother of dragons thing to do where they're like look what we did and they publicly kind of shame the bureaucrat for not believing in them and not giving them more supplies and then it really just kind of ends there's not a huge resolution it just kind of they're like haha look we have defeated and then it's kind of uh, and there's no the what we would have now is be like oh and so and so went on to do that you know there would be like kind of a fill in backstory there's none of that it's just over um, and part of that may be because there is a sense of if you're watching this originally that you maybe already know a lot of the stories about these characters and so we don't need to fill them in and the main thing I kept thinking and uh, Lori and Katie can fill you in on this is you the uniforms for these kind of bandits or these kind of neighboring kingdom that are uh, chasing them, they have Santa hats on, so they're like red with kind of yes. like little elf hats with yes, like white. It's Christmas elves! And, oh my gosh, yeah. the whole outfit looks like a Christmas elf. Yes, they even yeah, hang a lampshade on it, but with the boot scene, the curly yeah. boots. Yeah, yeah. No, I know it's ridiculous. It makes them not scary. <laughs> I know, and so to me, I it was just like these, these like little Santa elves are running around, and and so that's that was the main thing. Like whenever the fight scenes, I just be like, this is, yeah, you can tell this wasn't for Western audiences at all, as it shouldn't be. You know, it's made for for a native uh, a native like Hong Kong audience, but I just the whole I was like this any Western like this second just like Santa hat, Santa outfit, um, but and one of the things also to appreciate uh, with this again is that. Yes, this is made in the 70s, and yes, the gore is really fake. But it is, if this were if if this were made today with the technology they could have, this would be like it would be like watching 300 or something like that. It would just be incredibly brutally violent uh, because people are getting like people are getting like ripped in half, people's head are being beheaded, and then their heads are being speared or like shot with arrows. People are being chopped in half. People are being whipped, um, bloody. And so it, it is a very symbolically violent film. 
And so it, it's easy to look at it and be like, oh, this is silly. And that, you know, maybe I shouldn't take this seriously because it doesn't look as serious as it would be if it were filmed today. But if we are taking this on a very serious level, like these women know they will probably be killed. Uh, they will be raped. They will be murdered. And that none of it matters. It is all about the family honor. That's a great um, that's a great summary. Thank you so much. Um, and we're going to go ahead and jump into discussion. Um, and actually, one of the things that I wanted to ask and um, is that how do we hold on a second? Sorry. Um, before I ask a question, actually, I just wanted to say too. I noticed the same thing you said about um, when you're talking about it's all about the family honor. Um, and I'm going to give I'm going to cite my sources, right? As we always tell our students, they have to do. Um, and I'm going to say something that my husband said yesterday because I thought this was a really good point. Um, but this hadn't occurred to me before, but he pointed out that at the beginning of the movie, when they're trying to get great grandma to stay home, the grand duchess to stay home, they don't want her to go to the battle. And they also try to get the young son to stay behind. Um, he pointed out that, you know, if grandma's like the stability of the past and the son is the hope for the future, the fact that both of them also go basically means they're risking everything. Like, and I thought about that too, Sarah, when you said like every family retainer gets to go. And I told David last night we were watching it. I said, honestly, all I kept thinking was you get to go to war and you get to go to war. Like that Oprah gif where everybody gets a car. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like that. Like sure. people keep coming up and going, but I want to go. And then great grandma kind of hesitates for a second and is like, okay, you can come. So everybody goes to war. And so if they all get wiped out, literally this family will end. Because, you know, everybody goes along. And so it's it's interesting, you know, they really are risking everything um and i just you know because all all for family honor and um and that's interesting too is that it's um you know it's all grounded in that that's that's the whole point about everything which do you want to um well before we get to that actually let's talk about the the biggest thing that we've been wanting to talk about this whole time as we were preparing for this episode listeners is yes. the character of um wing guang who's the young the young son in the movie um, and it's a very strange thing because as you will see when you watch the movie, um, he's supposed to be a, a very young boy, but he's played by an actress who looks like she's probably in her late teens. So, you know, girl who's as tall as the other women in the movie playing what is supposed to be a young boy character. And the effect is very strange. Um, and... I'm going to, when before, because I don't want to maunder on about that, what did you guys think when you when you first watched the movie, what did you think about that particular character, about that casting choice, or how did, how did what did you think was happening? Honestly, the only way I could tell that that was actually a son and not just some other sister in in the initial feast scene was with the, the, the flowers, the handing out of the decorative hair flowers and why that kid didn't get one. I was like, well, why doesn't she get one? Clearly everyone's treating her as, she, as if she's part of the family. And then it dawned on me, oh, this fully grown woman is playing the part of a small boy. And I was so confused. So confused. Well, I, was not, I was not that sharp, Lori. And so I was like, oh, they're all girls. They're all girls. And then they go up and like the, the spineless bureaucrats, like, oh, all the women. And then she comes out and is like, I'm a boy. And I was like, oh, no, she's doing like a Mulan thing. Like, that's not a boy. Because I hadn't really read the summary before I watched the movie. I was like, I'll just watch it. And so I was just like, oh, yeah, she's doing like a Mulan thing and just going off to war anyway. And then all of a sudden, it was like later on, like halfway, I was like, 
oh no, she's supposed to be an actual boy. Oh, okay. It's just so, so weird. I was like nearly as sharp as you. And a lot of it makes it difficult because a lot of the external markers of gender that we're used to seeing are long hair. He has long, the character has long hair, has very, has these soft flowing robes that are essentially feel almost indistinguishable but from what some of the women are wearing and is yeah. the same height and all of this. And it's obviously a female playing it. And so it's just like, Oh yeah, just a girl doing like a Mulan thing. Yeah. That's totally what I thought for literally half the movie. Yeah, this is this is something I'm I am really fascinated by and like hardcore like on with this movie is the way that the costumes are set up. But there's something seriously weird happening with Yang Wing Guang uh, in, in the in the way that the the little boy is being dressed like all of his mother, his aunts and all of, all of these women and, and set apart. So maybe this is what I've decided after struggling with this for some time, maybe they're trying to suggest that the resiliency and the reliant reliability that it rests within the Yang family because of Mu, Mu Gua Ying um, is that femininity may maybe maybe the future of the family is safe because of the female influence on this young boy maybe maybe yeah i well and i i had i i just almost even wondered if there was and and it, it makes me really wish that i could read it makes me wish that i could read mandarin because um I, i'm sure that there are probably there's probably been a lot of stuff written about this movie that i just can't read um, but I, it makes me wonder if it's some kind of homage, if there's something cultural happening, if there's like a specific reason to make this choice, because Sarah's right. Like she has visible breasts. Like they don't even try to like make her look like a, a little boy. And she's as tall as all the other adult women. And the, the weirdest thing to me is that she doesn't play that role like, um, other boy characters. Cause there are other wuxia films. Yeah, no boy lot... actually acts like that. Like it is a no. woman basically just saying, I am a boy. The only thing I could maybe think of is kind of like we have a tradition of like Peter Pan always being played by like, like a little like gammon pixie, like adult woman. Right. Like, so maybe yeah. there's something like that going on that we just don't get. Even then though, he's supposed to be, I mean, you know, Peter Pan's supposed to be a young man. Like, I mean, you know, not, not like, not like she kind of plays, like she can almost plays him like he's five or like, I mean, and, and, and like there's other, there's other wuxia films and tons of wushu films that have boy characters in them. And usually in those other wuxia films, if you have a boy character, one, it's an actual boy, like a small boy child. But mm-hmm. also they tend to be preternaturally solemn. They tend to act very adult because often in those movies, they're, they're, um, ha- things are happening to them that are really traumatic. They're trained so, killers from, from being a toddler. Right? Yeah. Like, so she's not even playing it like, you know, other boy characters in similar movies are. And I told my husband, I was telling the ladies before we started recording listeners that I told my husband last night, he said, that's a 20 year old girl trying to play a 10 year old boy. And I said, who's acting like a five year old girl, like, or stereotypically speaking, like, you know, just with the, I mean, her gestures are just huge and she stomps and she sulks and she's petulant. Yes. Yeah. Very petulant. And I don't know, maybe that's also meant to suggest that he's spoiled a little bit by having all these women around to to coddle him and spoil him. I don't know. Um, Yeah, maybe 
he's getting soft and doesn't actually have the manly influence that having fathers around would be. I don't know. What I saw when I, when I was doing a little more research on this is uh, somebody described it, um, and we can uh, put the link for this in the show notes, uh, is that they described this show as, imagine if in 1959 that Elvis Presley had played the daughter of Frank Sinatra in a movie. <laughs> and like, and that's that, cause they were like, that's how they're like, that's how revolutionary and what a big deal this was in Hong Kong. And I obviously, I can just take the word of this blogger. So, you know, random blogger, whatever that's worth. But, you know, I was just like, Oh, okay. And so that the idea was that, at least this person was proposing is that this is supposed to kind of be a shocking thing that it's not supposed to like, it's supposed to make the audience be like, Oh, okay. And not just be like, and not be a very conventional thing. Okay. Well, and there's, there's two other pieces of information that I just wanted to throw out there. One of which I think could be really relevant to this. I don't know what this means, but when I was researching Mugaying, one of the things that I found is that in the legends, she is supposed to have had two children, a son and a daughter. Okay, there's no daughter in this movie. Like, what? And and it almost makes me wonder if they like collapsed the two into one. It's just it's incredibly strange because why would you make a movie about Mugaying called the 14 Amazons and not have her daughter in it? Particularly because she's supposed to have had both of those children with her husband who dies at the beginning of this movie. So where's her daughter? Well, and I think part of it maybe is that the again just referencing back to a Wikipedia article I read because I'm super on top of things. And um, one of the things that it mentioned is that the, that son, the, the male character is considered to be almost like an actual historical figure. Right. But the female daughter character is like, like, Oh, it is her daughter, but he, de- but it, that character is not named in, you know, folklore, historical, anything like that. And so then oh, it's okay. like, okay, well, we'll just kind of collapse. And so it's like, oh, there's a daughter. And then there's this one named character who goes on to be a great warrior and do all these other great things, right? Like, so that son that we're seeing acting played by an adult woman playing a 10-year-old, playing a five-year-old, is this idea is like he grows up to be this great, brave warrior like his father and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And so the and so the other thing is that we know or that the the, the original audience would know is that you know, and this is like out of the stump of Jesse, out of like the little like, you know, the branch of the magnolia tree or whatever is like the the, fl- the family continues to blossom because that male character is supposed to go on and be another great warrior like his father, and like all the other Yang men. And it actually helps continue the military tradition. The family isn't wiped out. Sure. No, that makes perfect sense. Well, and I should also say, too, this the kind of gender bending thing is not strange right um i something i found out when i was researching too is that ivy ling po who plays um mugaying um she was a she was a before she did um any wuxia films she was a star of chinese opera films but she got famous basically overnight by um starring in this movie called the love etern or etern um in which is is an opera film but that movie covers another very 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 famous story about kind of a tragic um love story of two people uh, forbidden to be together but in in that story um the girl half of that romance disguises herself as a man 
and then falls in love with this guy who actually is a man and then all various tragical things happen but when they made the movie ivy ling poe played the guy like who's supposed to be a guy so in this movie you have a story in which the female character dresses as a man and then she falls in love with a man and then he finds out she's a woman all that stuff happens but when they cast the movie they cast ivy ling poe a woman as the male character and it made her a massive star and so all of this stuff is kind of happening. And you see this in other movies too, um, you know, androgyny or, um, you know, disguises, lots of stuff like that can happen, happens in, in movies like these. So, um, but it's interesting to find out what you said, Sarah, that even at the time people were, you know, like shocked by this. And, and at the end of the day, listeners, we just think it's a really strange choice. <laughs> um, we didn't totally get it. Um, but, you know, um, going back to, we talked about he lives in a world surrounded by women. Um, one of the things that I noticed at the beginning is, um, the young boy wants to go to war and his mother and everybody else, they want him to stay behind. And great grandma says, you can go, but you have to prove that you are capable enough to come. And so your mother's going to test you. And that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie is, um, so Mugaying is testing her son. And at the very, at the beginning of this duel, basically, or this test fight, she's not pulling any punches. Right. She's like really trying to make sure that she's testing him. I also think she doesn't really want him to go because she doesn't want him to die. Right. Um, but in the course of the scene, you also find out something interesting, which is that even his military training, his fighting training has also come from a woman because one of his aunties, one of the many women um, who are, you know, first, second, third, fourth, I think ninth aunt goes out to ninth aunt says after he wins with scare quotes because his mother lets him win after he wins the the duel she says um you know ah my people did well so you know even his training in fighting has also been um from the women um and i did you guys notice that or did you have any feelings oh, yeah. about okay yeah go ahead um no i i mean i noticed it too and it was tied up in that weird realization that this is actually the sun you know, and it got me it got me wondering about the way that we are missing out on on how these films are culturally coded because we don't know the history and also we don't speak Mandarin. And so I I would I would be willing to bet lots and lots of money, even some of my own, that the actual dialogue is a lot smoother and less stilted and uh, frankly ridiculous than the dubbed version is, um, which probably explains some things that we're, we're looking for. And I think we just have to get on Duolingo and learn how to speak Mandarin. Um, but it got me thinking about how Wen Guang functions in, in the story, like beyond this petulant little girl act, uh, the the idea that this I think and I can't remember which one of you said it but whoever said that this this little boy is spoiled it seems really important that this little boy has been looking up to his father who is like a big time important dude who has not been around for a long time because he's been off fighting the king of Mongolia um, he has this idea of masculinity that is very abstract because he doesn't have a lot of reliable masculine figures, but he's also got this feminine, feminine model that he's surrounded by, which is really kind of confusing in, in some ways. 
because it's it, it like okay so if we go back to the first scene when we're meeting the women it's this big feast and the grand duchess the uh, great-grandmother is sitting up at the top of this dais in this really elaborate robe, very akin to the same kind of robes that the emperor's officials wear. So it's not marking her as feminine. And she's got her hair pulled back super severe, super tight, and in a lot of ways worn like the men wear their hair. But the difference seems to be with all of the women with their hair is that they, they wear a bun on the very top of their head instead of tilted towards the back so we have this frankly androgynous great-grandmother figure sitting over and lording over all of these younger to middle-aged women who are dressed in the same kind of pastel flowing silks with delicate updos and then you have this little boy who shows up in the same pastel delicate silks but in a more free-flowing, if slightly utilitarian hairstyle. And then there's a strange ceremony of the presentation of the hair flowers where the little boy goes around and gives all of his aunties um, this decorative silk hair flower that they, they all put into their buns. And then this is when um, word comes from the general's uh, who ran away from, who managed to get away from the initial fighting where all the men die. And uh, Mu, Mu Kuang, Kuang, Kuang goes off with the generals into another room and finds out about the the death of her husband and removes her ceremonial hair, uh, hair rose, hair flower in, in grief. But then they talk and she puts it back in because they don't want great grandmother's joy because they're celebrating um, Yang, the general, they're celebrating his birthday while he's he's gone. They they put the flower back in to show that no, everything's fine because they don't want great grandmother to be unhappy. And then when they they finally get to like the truth comes out, maybe 15, 20 seconds later, it's a really short lived ruse. Like they all just sort of ceremonially remove their feminine marker of happiness, I guess is the only way of saying it. And that's when the character played by Lily Ho really starts to express, I'm a boy kind of stuff. It, it It's much more confusing and ambiguous until after the hair flowers have been removed and the women are no longer performing their formalist femininity. They're switching into their martial femininity and, it's it's like he get the character gets to be more openly a boy question mark when the women are less openly feminine question mark yeah it's true it is it's very unclear and and it and you know and then they all change clothes right after that and then they're all in and that's when it becomes really difficult to tell them apart as Sarah said because they're all wearing identical gray kind of robes and hair pieces and I'm pretty sure in that scene they're dressed for mourning that's like mourning garb um, and then in the scene after that then they all switch into their you know military outfits because they're going out to fight which are also all all of them are also identical except for the boys' outfits are slightly different but still related. And it just occurred to me for the first time, Laurie, when you were talking about um, the little boy, 
and having this this abstract of masculinity, but they talk about the fact that on this particular campaign, his dad's been gone for five years. So depending on how long, how old this kid is supposed to be, we're never sure exactly, but we know he's supposed to still be going to school because they talk about that. He may not even remember his dad, like personally, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. His dad's like made of stories. And there's that whole thing that there's that whole scene where they've got all the like the plaques at the end of the room and incense and stuff. And I said to David, are all those plaques for him, the the general who's just died? And David said, no, like, that's all of their family members who've died. Like, that's kind of the family shrine. So all of all each plaque is a, is one of these men who's been cut down in battle. So if this is what is filling his head, this little tiny boy, right? It, yeah, you're right. It's very strange because everything he hears is like about masculinity involves going off and dying in battle. But what his daily reality is he's completely surrounded by women all the time. All the time. Yeah. And so it's, you know, I mean, it's it's really, really interesting. Um, and the, you were talking about symbolic way earlier. You mentioned symbolic costuming and stuff. Um, something else that I didn't realize until this time or that I didn't learn until recently is that like when the, the emperor's like prime minister guy comes and he's he's telling them they can't have any troops and grandma gets very angry with him. Um, there's various things about his outfit I didn't realize that are showing that he has the authority of the emperor to say things. Oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like he's got the certain, like the picture on the front of his, like his tunic thing, um, you know, his particular hat. Um, and so then when um, when Grand Duchess, who has the dragon staff, which makes her above the law, which is super fun. That's a great way to uh, to be able to just win the plot. Yeah, it's formally <laughs> and explicitly stated that the, the dragon staff makes her above the law. That is I awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, but but so like when she knocks off his his hat, um, you know, she's she's getting um, she's getting rid of his she's using her symbol of imperial authority. Right. To to knock his off. <laughs> it's just it's interesting. Um, it's like a duel of symbols, maybe. Um, I'm trying to think about, um, was there anything else either Laurie or, or, or Sarah, is anything you wanted to say about costuming? I do want to see one more, one more thing that, and this, uh, ties into like the fact that all the Mongolian soldiers look like Christmas elves. If you look at the way that the two sort of like bad guys versus good guys are styled, there's something really interesting going on there in that. All of the Yangs have a, t a tend towards simplistic military uniforms, uh, if elaborately studded leather can be called simplistic. Whereas the Mongolian, um, definitely the, the Mongolian princes, but the, the Mongolian forces are really ostentatious. There's this one scene that we, uh, we mentioned earlier where uh, – the Mongolians have have sort of ambushed the Yang women and their retainers. And one of the Yangs who hadn't been captured is trying to infiltrate to, to help people. But he's given away because he while he stole the shirt and the hat and pants of a Mongolian soldier, he didn't get the shoes. And they're these crazy shoes. Like, have you ever seen um, the the cowboy boots that certain uh, Mexican uh, cultures or Mexican subcultures prefer that have like the super pointy toes that come up like three feet. No, yep. no exaggeration. It's like, it's like somebody went to war in those things. And 
it, the the movie points it out. It's like, ha we know that you're actually a liar because you aren't wearing the elaborate shoes. Ha ha ha, kill you. You know, like they go out of their way to point out how the bad guys are dressed super ostentatiously, whereas the good guys, the women, who are generally pretty well every culture except for like birds is expected to wear much more elaborate costumes on a regular basis than dudes because like dudes got to go out and be dudes and do like manly things whereas women have to be beautiful and and homely at or not homely and beautiful because that's kind of counterproductive but stay at home and be beautiful yeah. and garbed and it's the women who are really magnificent magnificent soldiers who are wearing very simple uh utilitarian designs and the bad guys are dressed like evil elves. There's, it's really fascinating. And I think it ties into that. This, this myth of masculinity with the Yangs, because all the men are gone and have been for ages. And so the women are performing femininity like they're supposed to, they're being dutiful wives. But then when they have to take up their swords, they're like performing as dutiful men and there's something wrong with the, the Mongolians. It's that's how you know that they're not worthy of, of being in charge and that they need to be defeated is that they don't understand the time and place, like the chirotic approach to fashion that the Yang family does. Yeah, it's kind of as if, like, it would be as if, like, Odysseus's wife, like Penelope, were like, I don't need to wait for Odysseus to come down. I can, like, take care of all you guys by myself. And she starts, like, swinging a sword at, like, all the suitors. And, like, Odysseus gets back and she's like, look what I did, bro. Like, it's, you know, because, yeah, you're right. Like, the guys have just been away for what seemed for an incredibly long time. And they're just kind of there, right? And so instead of being like, oh, we're Penelope at the loom and I'm just, you know, making my little tapestry, they're like, no, we are we are on top of it and we can fight for ourselves and all that. And, it, it, and so for that, that was a, a very fun kind of thing, I think to get, to get to see. Um, and that I, I look forward to maybe watching this again uh, with my, my friend Katie, who I mentioned earlier, because I was asking her about it. I was like, what are your opinions? And they'll be smart and I can express them as my own. And she's like, Oh, I've never seen this. I was like, Oh, dang it. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of, there, there's, there's a lot of, things that are that are very different than we would think of if this were taking place you know in like authorian england or you know you know the song of roland don't you know doing something like that in france or in like the time of like el cid in spain like the women are just very very different than they would be in any of those stories um it's interesting to me too um watching this movie as a complementarian is really interesting Right. So if you think about, you know, um, kind of an egalitarian mindset of, you know, we we sh we can and should do the same things because men and women, you know, can do can and should do the same things. And whereas complementarians were kind of like, well, men and women have differences and sometimes they should fulfill different roles, whatever. Well, these are women who, um, while having been trained to a high level of military prowess, which in itself is interesting, um, nevertheless, at least um, at the beginning of the movie, they appear content to be home, right? To be back in Yang headquarters, you know, um, holding down, you know, the home while all of these men, generations of men have gone out and fought and died, you know, 
And then they're back home, I guess, raising the children. Though in this case, it's the child because he's the only one left. However, when all of the men are killed, there's zero hesitation about immediately, like you guys were saying, immediately swinging into that martial mode. So it, it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting idea because there's no question that they're as capable. I mean, there's there's like a gesture at that at the beginning where the, the emperor's prime minister says, like, an army of women, that's laughable. <laughs> like, you know, like that would be ridiculous. But particularly if you know the background and you know who Mu is supposed to be, right, that she's supposed to be this famous warrior, there's not really, you know, the, the film leaves no question in the viewer's mind that these women are capable. Um, even if, um, but also though presents them succeeding in ways that are unconventional. And I think that's interesting too, is, you know, the prime minister's man might go, you guys are fighting like women because so many of the things that happen in this movie are not direct confrontations, but instead are things that are accomplished by being canny or clever or, um, you know, sneaky kind of, um, because they're an army of women. They can't fight in exactly the same way. And they're an unexpected army and they fight, I guess, in un unconventional ways. But, um, you know, there's no question that they're capable. But at the same time, up to this point, they haven't seemed to feel the need to try to insist on their place on the battlefield. You know, they're not like, it's not like Eowyn and Lord of the Rings or something. They're not like, let me fight by your side, you know, or whatever. Um, and so that's, that's interesting to me that they've, they, in many ways, have been trained just like the men, but are still, nevertheless, until the men are gone, are are, are performing a more traditionally feminine role, like you said, Laurie. Um, yeah, and I think that, that hits on something interesting that Sarah mentioned earlier, that the, the Mongolian fighters, at the very beginning, there's this sense that they had a, a really underhanded ambush on the Yang, the Yang troops, and that that kind of sneak attack was dishonorable, whereas what the women of the Yang family try to do, um, instead of trying to meet the Mongolian king on his field of battle, like, duh, they're not going to meet an opposing force with larger numbers on his chosen battlefield. They're not idiots, so of course they're not going to do that. But the women were talking about, like, what do we do? We're, we're outnumbered. They're, traditional battle will not work for us. And they say, well, we can sneak around and come up the side of the mountain. It's super treacherous, but then we can just skip all of these things and fight them right there at home. And there's never a sense that the women going up the mountain is underhanded or dishonorable in the way that that sneak attack at the very beginning of the film is very clearly coded as, Oh, don't do that, bro. That's, that's real bad juju. And, and so I think there's something there with, with the way that gender is both highly constructed, highly and high, like rigid in some respects and, and performed. It's also strangely malleable. Um, what is that? What is that? Oh, Oh, it's a scientific word that I'm not going to be able to remember for a thing that's like gooey, gooey, gooey one way and you put electric current through it and, it and it goes solid. But that's like how the the gender is in this movie. It's it's a gooey, gooey, gooey and then it's solid. And it's fascinating the way that it also maps out onto the military strategy that you see play out in the movie. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and And I wonder if part of it could be, and this is something else that we had, talked about touching on so we can go there too um i wonder if part of it is that the initial ambush right that kills marshall yang at the beginning is um part that ambush is part of an invasion 
right? So these guys are, these Mongol guys are invading into their territory. And then as part of that, they ambush him. He gets killed. Whereas these women, they're sneaking around and trying to ambush, doing whatever they're doing to take revenge, right? So the motivation is totally different. It's not, we're going to invade you and take your, take your land. It's you killed all of our people. So we're going to come take revenge on you and, you know, and avenge our family's honor, right? Like you were talking about honor, Lori, so that it's, I, I mean, I think that is, is part of it is, is, and, and so, but how do we feel about that? Like I was watching the movie and thinking as, as, as Christians, right, we're not really supposed to condone revenge taking. And so, you know, how do we feel about the revenge element of their quest? You know, does that change how you, you view the film or, or, or how you see these women? That's a really good question. And I think it's hard, it's hard to reconcile the actual Jesus in the Bible who is very, like who, who literally gave up his life in order to to help other people, right? So there is there is no vengeance there. Hard to reconcile that with the stories that we tell, even within a, a Christian tradition in the West. Like the Arthurian cycle, the Roland cycle, like they're all like nominally Christian, and yet it's all super violent. Uh, you killed my father, prepare to die. Um, where there's a sort of a schizophrenic nature to these stories, where you have to ignore one central tenant of a person's being in order to explore another one, but that that division does not seem present here. And I think that is related to the Confucian approach behind, well, like Chinese culture, but also at the heart of these uh, wuxia romances is that like, there's a, there's a sense that there's balance and a good and evil and not the sharp, black and white heaven and hell kind of dichotomy that our our stories in the west have been built around so maybe maybe it's it's confucius it's all confucius well and and i should say i I phrase that badly listeners i was not expecting this movie to in any way be christian right (laughs) any kind of christian terminology maybe a better way to say that question would be can we as christians appreciate a film about revenge right like what can we take from that because like this is a movie that i would love to when she's you know way older love to show my daughter you know because i think it's a great film and i and i love you know all the 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 womanly strength that's on display but like i'm gonna need you know a way to talk about to her why we think this is a great movie to watch even though it totally promotes revenge but i think that's the answer laurie that you're talking about and and we've been talking about this the whole time too is that in this film everything it's it's all about family honor and and that's why so many things things like gender just fall by the wayside because in the end it's about the family honor and um and not just the family honor but um grand duchess says the honor of our country too is at stake that's why she shames the prime minister is you know she says you're just hiding cowardly back here but the honor of our country is at stake not just the honor of our family so she says yes we want revenge but we want to we want we want revenge for our country um and so you know i think that's maybe the answer is that it's not yes revenge but it's not personal revenge even i'm mad at you because you took away something i love but like it's our family honor that's at stake right now um well we're we're gonna we're about to start running long so we're gonna go run i have one more question and then we're gonna do recommendations my last question is 
you can pick either is do you have a favorite moment in the movie that's your favorite part or who is your favorite Amazon in the movie? Laurie, you start. Um, I, I think my favorite moments in the film might have to be either when the rivers r- bl- flow pink with the blood of their enemies. I just love, I love that moment. Um, or when the, uh, the Amazons are making their final assault on the Mongolian castle and they're hiding in a turret with uh, one of the lookouts, forcing the lookout to, to pretend everything's cool. A bunch of women actually force a dude to smile more. And it just it brings <laughs> joy to my soul. Um, but I think if I had to go to, with like a favorite character, it might be Pearl, the, the, the retainer who feels really horrible about losing all of their food. I don't know why, but she just she resonates with me somehow. There and, and we don't have time to talk about this, but maybe we can get a conversation going on our Facebook page. There are some really interesting things happening in this movie, I think, with their servants and them also wanting to come along on the quest and the, the really the really big roles that they play in helping them succeed. And I think it's really interesting. Um, Sarah, what about you? What was your favorite part and or person? So I think my I don't know if it's a favorite part, but it's the part that when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is going to be the like predominating image I'm going to be thinking of. And it's when they form the human bridge. Right. Right. And yes. I, just, I kept thinking like, oh, I have not done enough Pilates for that. Um, because I was, like, I kept being like, oh, they must have like amazing core strength. <laughs> I was thinking the whole time. And then because and also like, oh, because, you, you know, they um, readers, readers, listeners, they form like on each side of this like crevasse or something. Uh, they form like a human bridge and they like lean forward and connect in the center and then like let the other people walk over them, which one is like hugely symbolic of just like, like laying yourself down literally for like for your family and for this cause. And also I kept thinking of like these people crossing over are not, they're doing it like the worst way possible. Like they're walking very slowly, like instead of like, you know, I'm going to distribute by way weight, maybe like go on my hand. Like, no, like we're just going to stroll over the top of them. And they're over there, like, you know, fighting with every second that they have to like be strong. And like, we're just kind of over here, like talking to the side and then we're going to cross over. Like that was the part that, that to me is the most, like that just sticks in my head the most as being the most ridiculous. Uh, And I think if for a favorite character, goodness i i'm i can't i like their i like the, the the retainers who at the very end are kind of like no we will sacrifice ourselves because these women have done some amazing stuff they've been clever they've been canny they have been you know they've done lots of cool you know they've many several of them have already sacrificed their lives for the cause and they're about to go fight but they recognize that there is a thing that they cannot do because they are women right like they are not strong enough to like take axes and like chop down this like damn like they just physically can't do it and so they they've they've been clever they've been all this cool stuff and then they get to this one thing that they just can't do because they are not physically strong enough um and then the men are like no 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 this is where we come in and this is what we do to help y'all and like again it's about the family honor and because it's not just 
because they say like the family says like no you will be remembered in the halls of our ancestors right like you are a part you are yangs right and so it is this and so to have you know i think that's an incredibly moving thing to have these kind of these these sacrifices by to by on a societal level very very low you know just soldiers who are going with them to be like no we are elevating you to the level of the great warriors and generals that have been in this family and we recognize that same sacrifice i think that's really cool thanks yeah um i was also going to name as one of my favorite parts the bridge of people um which is i think one of Probably the craziest sequence sequence in the movie. Um, though I I love I love all their different tricks though. Um, and I, I also one of my favorites is when they have no food, and the army need their their soldiers need food, and so um, they sneak into the enemy camp at night and stick bamboo, you know, in like these bamboo shoots or tubes into their rice sacks, and they're just stealing all their rice right out from underneath them. Right now it goes bad because they're discovered and chased whatever, but um, you know super clever. Um, and but my favorite um, character is probably, and I, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I don't even, I can't, I can't find her name and pick her out, but she's like ninth aunt or something, but she's the only one in that first scene that's given any hint of a personality because she's the last one who gets toasted by Moo, and she says, before she even toasts her, she, the aunt, says, um, one drink's not enough, bring me another one, please. Like, oh, yeah, so she's, she's coded amazing. immediately as she's kind of a lush a little bit, or at least that's how they want you to think. Like, she's, she's, or she's like bluff and like she likes to party. I don't know. Like, so they, she's asked to be brought two drinks. And, um, and, you know, Moo's like, oh, you really like your drinks, right? Like, and it's like a thing. But she's also the same one who has trained the little boy to fight. She's the one who says that he's my pupil. Now, so I don't know if that bring me two drinks thing is also a way of coding her as more masculine. That's possible right? She trains the little boy to fight and mm -hmm. she also likes her drinks. Maybe she's supposed to be coded as one of the most masculine of these women. I don't know, but she's probably my favorite in, in that and partially because she gets given something <laughs> besides <laughs> a title and you know, it's a way to pick her out of the lineup. There's also one other one that I like cause I can always find her because they all have these very straight locks of hair on their cheeks, but one of the, and there are two, two women who appear to be slightly younger who seem to be, grand duchess's closest retainers they're always with her they like hold her arms up when she walks and one of those two she has curly little she has little curls on her cheeks um which helps them pick her out of the lineup and when they're going through quickly but also um you know she's she's um at least in her garb and her hairstyle is even more feminine looking than the other women and that's kind of interesting too even though she suits up just like everybody else to go out and fight in the battle um well, that's awesome. Um, well, let's move on to our last bit, um, as always, passing on. So um, what uh, what are you recommending today, Laurie? I am recommending two movies, uh, both classics. You should immediately stop what you're doing. Go go watch these, then get on our Facebook page, and, and we can all talk about how great they are. The first is another Shaw Brothers classic um, featuring several, several actors from – from this movie called the five deadly venoms it is a kung fu movie par excellence it is one of the most entertaining films in the world go watch it and also to kind of bring it into today i'm going to recommend crazy rich asians one because it's so charming and charismatic but two lisa Liu, who plays the the grand duchess great grandmother she is ama 
in Crazy Rich Asians. So you just have to kind of imagine the character from 14 Amazons ruling over the Singaporean family in Crazy Rich Asians. And it's like, nope, it makes perfect sense. It's a backstory for Crazy Rich Asians. So go watch those those movies. Um, I can vouch for The Five Deadly Venoms being amazing. It's one of our favorites, too. Uh, Sarah, how about you? So I am going to make a recommendation for a similar title movie uh, that is also about vengeance. And so instead of uh, 14 Amazons happening in China, this is 13 assassins, and it's happening in Japan. And instead of women, it's all men. But it has the same kind of feel in that we are... Uh, we have starts out with a, a small number and it uh, has and instead of all being in one family, they're all kind of uh, soldiers who have somehow been like wronged by this like very like evil young princeling who is a very cool ruler. And so they, they plot to essentially assassinate all together uh, this kind of evil prince. And so it has much of the same thing of their on the run they're trying to be secretive they're being sneaky and then there's a big battle and people are having to make sacrifices for this to be achieved and so that that was my that was my gonna be my recommendation recommendation is a numerical movie that also has an a word uh 13 assassins i love that criteria um thanks Listeners, I'm going to recommend today uh, another Wuxia film, though uh, a more modern one. So, you know, there's a lot of awesome ones from that kind of earlier period, like 14 Amazons or Five Deadly Venoms that Lori recommended. The one that I'm going to recommend is called Deadful Melody, which is a 1994 Hong Kong Wuxia film and um, starring Bridget Lin, uh, who's, who's one of my favorites, uh, Yuan Bao and Karina Lau. And um, it's based on a novel, a Wuxia novel. But um, it's a story that involves lots of the things that we've already been talking about, fantastical battles, um, gender-bending garb, people dressed as the other gender, um, and features, hence the title, a, ma- a musical instrument that can kill. Um, the, the Bridget Lynn's character um, can play the instrument in such a way, the lyre, her magical lyre, she can play it in a way that um, basically it becomes a martial art (laughs) playing on the lyre. Um, It's really, really interesting, beautiful, um, beautifully shot. And um, also, and I don't know that I've ever done this before, but um, in addition to our passing on our recommendations, I'm also going to give a (laughs) possibly avoid this thing, which is that there is a remake of the 14 Amazons from like 2011 um, that is not good. So, uh, well, at least, I, I don't know, David and I don't think it's very good. Um, it definitely not as good as the original and very heavy on the CG, CG kind of landscaping in a way that makes it feel just very strange. So um, if you see that version, let us know what you think about it. Um, the one other thing I, I would say, and, and I'm not going to name names because there's too many, but if you're interested in the character of Mu Keying, who we've been talking about this whole time, who's kind of the center of 14 Amazons, um, that character is so famous in the legends that there's been something like, um, what is it, 12 films since like 1981, 12 other films besides the 14 Amazons that include her or feature her. So if you find her as a character interesting, you can check out um, any of those other movies. Um, I mean, I think the most recent one was in like 2012. There's still all the time movies being made about her. So if you find her interesting as a character, um, they're listed on the Wikipedia page that has her name. So um, 
Well, uh, listeners, before we close out real fast, I just want to make one quick announcement. Um, coming soon, um, we're going to be having um, a kind of, I guess you'd call it a kind of spinoff sub-series as part of Christian Feminist Podcast um, so that uh, one of our uh, other podcasts in the Christian Humanist Radio Network is City of Man, and they have a series that they do called Ancient Asides um, that focuses in on one particular topic. So we're kind of going to be doing a similar thing here at CFP, and we're going to be launching this new kind of occasional sub-series called Complementarian-ish, in which uh, some of our ladies at CFP who um, happen to be complementarian, we're going to be focusing in a little bit tighter on some issues in the complementarian sphere, um, just because it's a place we thought there could be some really fruitful discussion. And it's a a realm that we wanted to bring our same type of awesome... um, collegial discussion from the CFP into that world. So keep your ears out, keep your ears open for that. That should be appearing soon. And thank you so much for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We love to hear from you. So if you have topic or reading recommendations uh, for like a future show, or if you just want to make contact with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach us on our Facebook page where we love to dialogue with listeners. For show notes for this episode and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Um, Christian, Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Lori Norris and Sarah Klooster, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks for an episode on women in Star Trek. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love.